Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today and use our exclusive link expressvpn.com slash mission log and you can get an extra three months free that expressvpn.com slash mission log mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast episode 396 waltz Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we sit in a cave and listen to the voices in our head so we can shout out what we've learned about morals, meanings, and messages. Today's episode, Waltz, or as the Germans might say, Waltz. It's the one where uh, there's dancing. Well, not literal dancing, but it's more of a psychological back and forth between Cisco and Dukat. You know, they, they talk, but it's a waltz, just without the music. Right. Uh, just like that. Okay, I, I tell you what, I'll get ready for trivia while you tell people how to reach us, and then uh, we'll, we'll waltz through the discussion after that. There are voices in my head, but it's not me. <laughs> and if you know that, good for you. But here's something you may not know. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I know it's a little hard to read some of John's trivia notes in the cave, but we'll do our best. So let's turn up those fires and get a little bit more light in here. And here's John with this week's trivia. Here we go. Waltz was written by Ronald D. Moore. And we just had a Ron Moore script a few episodes ago with You Are Cordially Invited. And here we are with a very different kind of story in Waltz. Uh, Ron had an original idea that he had developed pretty far along. The idea was to have Cisco visiting Dukat while he's under psychiatric care. But then the majority of the episode would take place in Dukat's head. And actually, that's what they were calling it at the time, Dukat's head, um, kind of a riff on the old Herman's Head TV show. And uh, the delusion of those characters would be interacting with him throughout that part. Uh, so they liked the idea, but the story was short on action or real-world consequence. So they kept the pretense of the voices in his head, but completely rebuilt the plot to include Cisco and their interactions in person. 
the episode was directed by Rene Aubergenois. So it's funny, we go back to this idea of Rene really not feeling like he was cut out for directing. And other than DS9, he did very little in his career. The last episode that we covered of his was in season five. That was Ferengi Love Songs. He did say that he probably favored this episode the most, though, out of all that he directed. And it's easy to see why. It's an actor's episode, and he treated those scenes like a play. And he also worked very closely with the director of photography, Jonathan West, to smoothly transition into those scenes where Dakota is visited by his hallucinations. We have some ship mentions here. See, we have the uh, the Constellation, which is cool. Uh, ship mentioned in DS9 before, but also mentioned way back in TNG Season 1 in Conspiracy. And we had the USS Honshu, a Nebula-class ship. And we've seen a few Nebula-class ships before, starting in TNG as well. And here we have the Honshu, named after Japan's largest island. Those set pieces for the interiors, by the way, uh, you have a redress of the Defiant Corridors. And then the brig that we see is actually used from Voyager, which was in production right next door. And... Uh, too bad we won't see the Hanshu anymore. Very quickly, I'll tell you about guest stars. Well, as DS9 does from time to time, not a whole lot to report. Since here we do have Mark Alimo front and center as Gold Ducat. Then if you wanted to say that other of our regular and recurring actors are appearing as characters other than themselves, okay. Well, you've got Casey Biggs as Hallucination Damar. You got Jeffrey Combs as Hallucination Wayun and Anna Visitor as Hallucination Major Kira. Welcome to the USS Defiant. We weren't exactly expecting you, so feel free to set up your sleeping bag next to the warp core. Enjoy your stay. Prologue. Captain Sisko and Goldicott are both aboard the USS Honshu, in different capacities, though. Sisko is riding along as a Starfleet officer on his way to appear before a Federation Grand Jury. Ducat has the less comfortable ride in the brig. He's the subject of that Grand Jury, and Sisko assures him that in the eyes of the Federation, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Sisko's take on this is clearly complicated, though. Here's Ducat, racked by the grief of losing his daughter and the shock of the Dominion's retreat and his total breakdown and treatment by Federation doctors, but he's also a threat, a war criminal who needs to stand trial. Their conversation is cut short by the Honshu falling under attack. Act 1. The Honshu didn't survive. That's the news Major Kira got from Starfleet, but there were a couple of escape pods and shuttles that made it out after the Cardassians destroyed the ship. There are survivors, presumably, and one of those might be Captain Sisko. Worf will take the Defiant and assist in the search party of just one other ship, the Constellation, but time is short since they're due to escort a Starfleet convoy in just two days. Catching up with Sisko, it turns out he and Dukat somehow managed to escape the attack on the Honshu. Lieutenant McConnell helped get them to a shuttle and then was promptly killed by shrapnel, leaving this odd couple on their own to crash land on an unknown planet. 
The shuttle won't fly. Cisco had bad plasma burns and a broken arm, which Ducat couldn't mend with the med kit, so he made a rudimentary cast. There's a transmitter, which Ducat has set up to send out a distress signal, and whomever responds to it will determine which of these two will be the captor or the prisoner. As Ducat leaves the cave where they've set up camp to find some additional food to stretch out their rations, he's distracted by a familiar face. It's Weyoun, taunting Ducat mercilessly about his weakness and mental breakdown and how he should kill Sisko now. It's more than Ducat can take, so he takes out his phaser and fires right at Weyoun, who isn't there. Act 2. Ducat cooks up some food for himself and Sisko. While Ducat tries to make light of their situation, the reversal of their roles, Sisko is not finding much humor in any of it. Ducat pushes a bit more, probing about his friends on Deep Space Nine and how they feel about him. It's not like that, though. Even if the Dominion were pulling all the strings, nobody was glad to have Ducat there, and they all wanted to see him go. Sisko has to remind him that they are not friends, and that there is not a benefit of the doubt to be given here, even if Ducat saved his life this time. Ducat's distracted by a noise or something outside that he must go investigate, and just beyond their cave, he's confronted by Damar, like Weyun, though, just a product of Ducat's fragile imagination. Damar urges Ducat to kill Sisko, but he's far too invested in hearing from the captain that he actually admires him. But the faux Damar goes on. Imagine how much adulation Ducat will receive from Cardassia if he returns with the body of the emissary, wiping away the confidence the Bajorans have in their own government. It'll have to wait, though. Ducat isn't ready to kill Sisko. So what has Sisko been up to while Ducat has this strange conversation? He discovered that the distress beacon isn't working at all. The internal status shows that it's offline, even though the outer display shows otherwise. When Ducat returns to their part of the cave, Sisko suggests that he should have a look at it. On the inside, maybe run a diagnostic just to make sure. Ducat does so, but then says that everything is fine, it's working perfectly, and that's all that Sisko needs to know. Act 3. Worf and crew are doing pretty well. They've picked up some survivors of the Honshu, but still no Cisco, and their time is running out. Speaking of running out of time, when Ducat is out of the cave for a moment, the captain has managed to get the transmitter back online, and what do you know? Right on cue, the Defiant picks up a signal. We'll check in with that later. Cisco has hidden his tracks, feigning being asleep when Ducat comes back in. Ducat is all chit-chatty as usual, reporting how awful the conditions are outside, and now with the fire in front of them, he tells Sisko that the Bajorans would be confused if they saw the two of them like this. What would they possibly say about Gul Ducat and the Emissary getting along like two old friends that they are? And then Sisko gives Ducat a steely gaze. But Ducat presses on, and then the next hallucination starts. This time it's Major Kira telling Ducat that both she and Sisko think he's a cold-blooded murderer who should have been tried long ago for his war crimes. Sisko, for his part, says he wasn't there. 
he can't pass judgment, which only plays into the imaginary Kira who tells Dukat that he's just trying to placate the gull. Finally, Dukat asks again, what does Sisko think of him? Sisko's answer is measured. Dukat has been misunderstood, perhaps. He had good reasons for everything he did. Dukat agrees, but the imaginary Kira just laughs and laughs. He's being played by Sisko. Can't he see? Finally, Dukat lashes out directly at Kira, who reveals to Sisko that there's more going on here. He plays along. Maybe they should just talk and pretend like Kira's not even there. He may not have to keep this up much longer. On the Defiant, they've locked onto the distress signal, and they're getting closer. Good thing, because now imaginary Kira is working up Dukat to the point that he pulls out his phaser and starts shooting up the cave, barely missing Sisko. But the Defiant has locked on and beamed up, not Sisko and not Dukat, but rather two different people from the Honshu. They're beaming in the wrong place. Cut to things settled down a little in the cave. In the melee, Sisko's things had been tousled around, and Dukat spies a fork with a tine broken off, and he wonders why Sisko would have done such a thing for a little piece of metal. Aha! It's the distress beacon, and Dukat raises his weapon again and fires it, permanently destroying the transmitter, just as the Defiant had picked it up. With Dukat now feeling betrayed, he raises a long section of metal and strikes down near the captain. Act 4. The Defiant is in the right area, but it was the wrong signal, and now Major Kira is trying to call them back to get on with their next mission. But the message is garbled and nobody on the bridge can hear it. Really. Except they know. And so does Worf, who is in charge, and he's a very by-the-book kind of guy. And in this instance, he's carrying out the search right up to the last minute by scouting the third planet in the system. Sisko, beaten badly by Dukat, challenges the gull again. What does he want? Because if it's some kind of acceptance or forgiveness for what he did on Bajor, he's not going to get it. In Sisko's eyes, Dukat is a murderer who oversaw the deaths of five million Bajorans while he was prefect. No, he's got it all wrong. Dukat insists he was trying to save lives, improving the labor camps. And those ungrateful Bajorans reacted by blowing up a Cardassian orbital platform. So Dukat executed 200 suspected Bajoran resistance members. Now all the voices in his head are chiming in. Wayun, Damar, Kira. It's Kira who says they didn't want reconciliation. They wanted to kill the Cardassian occupiers. And it's Wayun who says the Dominion wouldn't have been as generous as Dukat. Sisko asks if he's got it right, that the Bajorans didn't appreciate what Dukat did for them. They pushed him to act out the way he did, and Dukat says yes, they were blind, ignorant fools and brought it on themselves. It was clear the Cardassians were superior in every way. The justification continues. To Dukat, the Bajorans brought it on themselves by not accepting the occupation. Their stubborn pride made it worse, and he hated them for it. What was that? Sisko pushes. Dukat hated them, and he wishes he had killed every last one of them. 
with his back turned. As Ducat slips further into his own rage directed at his hallucinations, Sisko uses the metal debris to knock out his captor. Act 5. With Ducat knocked out, Sisko escapes the cave and makes his way to the shuttle. The lead is short-lived, though, as Ducat has regained consciousness and chases Sisko down, physically removing him from the shuttle and throwing him to the ground outside. He vows that he'll show Bajorans what it really means to have him as an enemy. The fight continues, but Ducat has the upper hand and makes his way into the shuttle, closing the rear hatch with Sisko left on the ground outside. The shuttle, which must have been working all along, takes Ducat off-planet, but he left a signal, one that the Defiant picked up just before leaving the area for their rendezvous with the troop convoy. They weren't able to locate the shuttle, but they were able to rescue Sisko. Onboard Defiant now, in recovery and in sickbay, the captain confides in Dax that his time with Ducat has convinced him that there is no gray area here. Ducat is truly evil, and Sisko won't let him do anything to Bajor. He says that he fears no evil, and it's him or me. The End well, we have a lot of layers to peel back here because there's a lot of shades of gray to get through. But <laughs> let's start off with a couple of the things that like kind of stuck out with us during our observations here. You know, now. early on uh, in the brig, and just, you know, automatically a great scene. Uh, it, it, it's really nice when DS9 can do this thing that it does well, which is pick up a plot thread, pick up a character arc, and just continue to go with it from episode to episode. So we want to know what happened to... Ducat, where is he now? What is his state of mind? And he says something to Cisco. Uh, I'll take a bottle of Canar and an Orion slave girl. Uh, still a little bothersome that this is a thing in the 24th century that you can just you can just ask for, and it's sort of understood. Uh, but I, I I get it. This is Star Trek lore, and Cisco is just hearing out Ducat. But I, I kind of I didn't expect that here. <laughs> you know, some 30 plus years into uh, Star Trek history. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad that you brought up Rene, though, at the beginning, you know, saying that he wasn't really cut out for directing mm -hmm. or it's something that he didn't really enjoy that much because I really thought that he directed that Briggs scene, you know, really quite deftly as a director. Uh, there are some really nice choices that he made, uh, such as, you know, uh, establishing that Dakot was on his needs, but then shooting up at Avery and... yeah. Uh, creating this uh, this um, aspect of of Cisco kind of uh, both physically and and uh, uh, you know in a way of looking down on him mm -hmm. you know physically and mentally looking down on Ducat and Ducat looking up uh, at his captor and someone who's bested him in that nice physical representation yeah. I thought that was really really well yeah. shot I liked the uh, the Hanchu you know rest in pieces I guess. <laughs> <laughs> because it got blown out of the sky. <laughs> yes. But uh, nebula classes are, are, are interesting. And mm -hmm. I never really noticed this before, but and, and certainly not on the Defiant, but when Cisco was walking towards the brig, there was that kind of red, I guess a red directional line right. that was on the hallway. And is that supposed to be like, this is the way to the brig? Yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, it, it, it's nice. And it is just one of those little set dresser details that when you're using an existing set, but then need to make it look like you're on another ship, just throw in a stripe, throw in a color, change up uh, a lighting pattern a little bit, and boom, now we're on a new ship and you don't look at it and go, oh, wait, they just are shooting 
in the Defiant sets again. Um, and, and for the same thing with the Brig, I would need to go back and rewatch a little Voyager to see exactly what they changed from the Voyager Brig set. Uh, but I thought that was super cool too. Again, easy, inexpensive, but it stands out to you. You go like, oh, well, that is definitely a Honshu set not the Defiant. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the great thing about production designers and being able to kind of like reconfigure set dressings to have something that's already been established look completely fresh and new. I thought that was really, really smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do have a question, though, about technology in the 24th century. Mm-hmm. So when we're recording our shows and people on uh, that listen to the podcast know that we can do it through Zoom, we can do it telecommunications-wise. So I guess that when you're testifying for a, a special case like Ducats, you can't do it through subspace communications? <laughs> is, is, that a, is that the deal? You know, well, I, yeah, I thought maybe it's been a long time since they've had a uh, pandemic. But yeah, mm. you, you'd think that just using some sort of subspace would be much more preferable than uh, hauling people around the, the galaxy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Zoom at this time in the 24th century is a little bit more stable, but we did run into some subspace interference at just the right time. We did, yeah, yeah, we did. We'll get to that. Definitely a TV drama (laughs) moment manufactured. And speaking of which, I I, I do get, okay, this is, you know, manufactured TV drama, and we constantly have to raise the stakes. But in addition to technology like Zoom, definitely Starfleet use some technology like additional ships. I know you've just been Mm -hmm. through huge battles. Uh, There are a lot of casualties, a lot of lost ships. But to only have the Defiant and only have the Constellation go out and search, get get, get some search ships. Come on. Come on. We we, we can do this. (laughs) I feel feel confident in you. It is such a Star Trek trope about... You're the only ship in the quadrant. The only ship that can do this. (laughs) So Starfleet's really not a fleet, it feels like sometimes, right? right. (laughs) I I don't know about that. So, I mean, aside from the Defiance searching for Cisco, we did mention the the USS Constellation. So is this in the same name lineage line that Commodore Decker's Constellation was? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we don't know exactly where. We have to assume that this Constellation, this is the 24th century variant of the Constellation, the one that's referenced in uh, TNG. Uh, Like the Stargazer, uh, right? uh, what, What was the Stargazer Constellation class? At that mm, point? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, the constellation in TOS time was a constitution class ship. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you just yep. come up with a new design. You're like, okay, we're going to use an old name, but throw it on a new design, and that'll be the class on which others are made. So, as you know, fortunately, there are a lot of good books out there by people with the last name Okuda to help you sort through it yes, all. Yes, that's right. Also, break out your Franz Joseph technical yes. if you want to see the original Constitution class designs. Right. Uh, speaking of really great designs, I do love me a very cool-looking tactical display yes. table. And the one in Ops, well, the one that Oda was leaning over, I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah. There's some good-looking overlays going yeah. on here. Love stuff like that. I, um, I've been in a, a marketing position for quite a long time now, and one of the things they told us in marketing is never actually give a round number because they seem disingenuine when it mm. comes to uh, offering somebody some type of value. Mm-hmm. So when you have 12 hours here and 12 hours there, it just seems a little lazy to me when it comes to you know the, the details of a mission. Like, okay, it takes 12 hours to get there and then 12 hours to get to somewhere else. I yeah. mean, why not just, you know, like, you know they're, they're, these are technical people. This is Star Trek. So, like, it would take 11.57 hours to get there and it will take 9.82 hours to get right. back. 
<laughs> right. I would. I was just expecting. Yeah. Something like well, because you have warp engines, they go at variable mm-hmm. speeds, and, and I'm not assuming it's not, not like you have to come back to DS9, and it's not like DS9 is perfectly triangulated with where they have to wind up for the rendezvous. So yeah, it was that. That was a little strange. I, I agree with yeah. you. Where's Where's a Vulcan when you? Yeah. Need them, right? right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After all was said and done, and look, I'm not going to just throw out conspiracies uh, spurlessly on our show. Do you think Takat and Cisco were just lucky to escape together? Like, like did McConnell actually get killed by shrapnel, or did Takat off him? Because I, I might have to go with that theory. Or neither. You never know with Takat. Yeah, you know? right? I mean, he's just crafting his story so that Cisco buys into his his whole plot. But more important are, are the words that you just said, and I think that we have our band name for today. We have um, scurrilous conspiracy. Oh yeah! Oh good, good. I like that. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, for Cisco in the cave, that is a very cool cast. Look, I'll just say now, I've never broken a bone. Don't want to jinx it by saying that. But if I did, and again, let's hope that I don't, I would want that cast. It is. A space cast. I like mm-hmm. that. They cast it well. They, 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 oh, hey, hey. Oh, does oh. the fun ever start? Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like the clunky arm cast. It's, I mean, to, much to Dakot's credit, he's like, I don't know how to use this mm-hmm. stuff, but there's a cast. I put it on you. What do you want me to do? Shoot me. Oh, wait. No, wait. Hold on a second. I'll shoot you instead. <laughs> See, wait. Uh, I, I might say that uh, Dakot might even know how the, uh, the, the bone mending device, he might know how that stuff works. He might have destroyed it. He's he's there. He's just keeping Cisco under his thumb as long as he can until he gets out of him what he wants. So that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that piece of medical equipment could have worked. He could have made a brilliant cast, but he, he decided to do that interesting metal sculptural piece. I will say this from an acting point of view. Uh, like Kira is different here. She's somewhere in between the Kira that we know and the, say, like, intendant Kira, just sort of, like, laying around and being really in your face. And uh, Damar, uh, pretty much Damar, got to say, uh, the, the great thing about the real Wayun and paranoid delusion Wayun, they're basically the same guy. <laughs> just that, like yeah. that, that smarmy, manipulative, oh, God, he's so great. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Combs, no matter what slice of Wayun you get, he's still going to steal the scene. But I, mm-hmm. I, I do like what you said about these characters because they're all like the the mentally distilled versions yeah. of, of how Ducat perceived them. Like Kira was just this incessant, and I hate to say this word because it's not, and I'll say it in a disparaging mm-hmm. way, an incessant nag to yeah. him. Yeah. Like the... You know, they always had this relationship of kind of like the divorced parents that were always at each other's throats. Yeah. And Kara knew exactly what to say, how to say it to drive Ducat over the edge. Damar, on this hand, though, he was he was feeding into Ducat's ego the way that Damar would. Right. Yep. Exactly. And, but even more so in this hallucination. And then, of course, Wayun, again, was always this... Uh, this foil for Ducat and even more so as the hallucination. So I thought that those were really good choices yeah, there. Yeah. Hey, uh, something that I didn't look up and it just popped into my mind, um, I, that transmitter prop, I wonder if that was the same prop that Odo and Cork uh, had to carry up that mountain because um, that was a big piece of equipment there. I'd have to go double check. But something that I do... But what was Quark on a mountain? <laughs> what was Quark climbing a mountain? <laughs> but I, I do love uh, that transmitter and its big display system offline 
Like, I, I think that should just be a design standard from now on. We should simplify a lot of our electronics these days. And instead of multiple readouts or error codes, just one that says working or not working. Done. Like, what's wrong with your computer? It's not working. Oh, here, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, now it's working. Cool. That's... 24th century easy mm-hmm. button yep. right there. Yep, totally. Yeah. Is. And I do also, I like how that transmitter works uh, the same way that a CD-ROM drive on an old computer works. You, you just you need a paper clip to stick in the little hole to make it work again. That's what uh, Cisco needed with that fork time. Isn't it funny nowadays that like most smartphones are actually packaged with like an actual real designer paper yes. clip for your yes. SIM tray? <laughs> Love that. That is the ultimate yeah. tool. The ultimate tool for it computers. Truly is. Yeah, like a Swiss Army <laughs> knife now should come with that. <laughs> Just a, like a exactly. tiny little thin poker. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, why would you need that at all? Because, you know, technology, no matter if it's now or the 24th century, if you just give it a little bit of a smack, mm-hmm. it'll work. Oh, totally. Yeah, hit it. Just tap on it. Yep. It'll work. Yep. That's, yeah. And I wonder who the first person was to find that out. Because I remember my grandfather smacking the TV. But somebody before him was like, well, it's not working. Somebody in the RCA lab was like, uh, I don't know. What if you just hit it? And they did. And that stuck. I feel really badly for those survivors on the Defiant. Uh, the, the ensign mm. and the lieutenant who, who were on the Honshu who got beamed up. And, and they had the audacity to be rescued by the Defiant and not be Captain Sisko. I have many thoughts. <laughs> the look of disappointment on O'Brien's... I have many thoughts. Many yeah, thoughts okay, all right, on. yes. Uh, and yes, we get the old uh, the subspace interference excuse. Classic, classic to use that one. But hey, and you may, you may have thoughts on this too, Dr. Bashir. You may forgive mm-hmm. me if I don't consider your honor to be worth the captain's life. That right there, my friend, that Dr. Bashir just said in one line what we've been picking apart about Klingon honor in I don't know how many episodes. So bravo, sir. Bravo. See, I'll give Worf a pass on this yeah? one. Okay. To be honest yeah. with you, John, because, well, yes, we can make fun of Worf and we can make, you know, uh, we can we can point out that, yes, we have been saying that about Worf's honor. But at the same time, though, when it comes to mm-hmm. this, Bashir is essentially, and, and uh, I also have many thoughts on this later, but for this, Bashir was going to go against orders. Kira specifically said, do not delay the transport protection. And yes, it is Captain Sisko. But as we know, you know, he is one man in a fleet of important people. And who knows who those troops were going to go and protect. Yeah. So I, I do like that Bashir kind of throws it back at Worf. But Worf's like, you can get off my bridge at any time, Hey, bro. look, I don't disagree with Worf saying that. And I don't disagree that Bashir is being insubordinate in that moment. I'm just so glad he said it. <laughs> that just that oh, feeds yeah. my yeah. soul right there. Yeah. Cisco may be doing a waltz. Ducat seems to be doing interpretive breakdance to a dubstep soundtrack. We'll continue our waltz in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. Hey, Norman and our listeners, how about a, a little word about privacy? You know, there, there are certain rooms, maybe in your house or your office, where uh, you probably close the door behind you. 
you know, you, you don't want just random people walking by, checking in on you, getting into your business. So uh, why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Because that's what you're doing if you're not using ExpressVPN. In fact, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like, um, oh, you know, using a private room and not closing the door. I mean, also, did you know that your internet service provider, say Comcast or Verizon or Spectrum, they know every single website you visit. And what's worse is that they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. So ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure and encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be used or seen by anyone. Now, you've heard us talk about this before. You know that Norman and I use ExpressVPN on all of our devices because it just works on everything with one button. Uh, we put it on phones, laptops. Uh, you can put it on routers. Uh, you can put it on some smart TVs, smart devices, uh, tablets. So literally, you know, everyone who shares your Wi-Fi, they can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN because it's right there on your router. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as uh, closing the bathroom door. Yeah, I, I just said it. It is. So you fire up the app, you click one button, you are protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, uh, Mia Norman, and countless others. You know, I love when the the wireless connection shows the ExpressVPN uh, icon on the top because you know that's like locking that door behind you. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business in the room that you do your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. Use our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash mission log and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Hey, everybody, I'm Tawny Newsom. I know, and I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. <laughs> we know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's, it's a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of fun this season. We talk to all kinds of cool people. We talk to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and, and, and subscribe. All right. On to our waltz. Norman, our, our psychological waltz, our waltz of words, if you will. And uh, speaking of psychology, I, you know, I think this episode does such a good job right from the top. You know, we mentioned that uh, teaser scene in the brig on the Honshu and how not only is it written well, not only is it acted well, but it is shot in such a way to tell you everything you need to know about these two characters and their relationship to each other. And I really like what we're getting about Cisco's psychology right from the beginning. That opening narration alone, that says it all about his mixed feelings toward Dukat and his desire to be above that base feeling to just see him dead. 
And what, what's interesting is how it all unfolds, how it all unpacks over the course of the episode until you get to that final scene. And we will talk about that, obviously, as well. Interesting choice of words with uh, Cisco there. But he says in that opening narration that it would become – I'm sorry, that it would be unbecoming of a Starfleet mm-hmm. officer to just see him dead, to see Dukat dead. And on top of that, he's actually feeling some sympathy or, or uh, sympathy may not be the exact word, but some understanding about Dukat losing his daughter and losing his mind having this incredibly tumultuous experience over the last several weeks. So, um, you know, this is an episode that that definitely stops short of, say, a classic Trek episode where it's all about understanding the enemy and finding common ground. It's, it's not about that. And I think that's okay that we end up in a different place. But I really appreciate that we start with Cisco trying to approach this as broadly as he does and being honest about how he sees Dukat. Yeah, what I liked about this scene in his opening captain's log, it's that um, in the last couple of episodes, we have been highly critical of Cisco's motivations about being a little too apt to fire first and ask questions later. You know, he was he's embracing his wartime attitude. But here, you know, we are kind of in the the resolution phase of of Ducat's capture, you know, he is going to be brought to justice. And I think that Cisco's getting a moment of clarity here where he can step back from himself and say, what has this man lost? What has it done to him? Mm-hmm. And I'm a human being. I'm returning to uh, being in touch with my sensibilities and my moralities and looking at this from a bigger picture. This isn't just a war criminal. This is somebody who has lost everything. And maybe Cisco is reflecting on the fact that he almost was in Dukat's position if it weren't for a strange twist of fate, the deus ex machina that we talked about from Sacrifice of Angels. Right. It could have been him as easily. So it's nice to see him being the bigger man to uh, to Dukat and just giving him the, you know, giving him the, the benefit of the doubt from a humanistic standpoint, not necessarily saying that he's clear of all charges, but yeah, yeah. I'm going to show him mercy yeah. Because this is what we as Starfleet are trained to do, are, are, are taught to believe. Yeah, that, that, that's the important distinction is, yeah, he's not walking in there just saying, like, uh, how, can I, how can I exonerate Dukat? No, but he is asking himself, how do I see him as a person who has also been through some terrible things, but also needs to stand trial, and I need to be honest about his role in everything that just went down? Um and this is an episode that, you know, stylistically, I just think it, it works in the respect that, well, it, it reminds me of episodes like Chain of Command, I think, very clearly. Um, and, of course, any of the episodes where you've got two stranded characters at opposite ends, like you could say like Duet or Darmok, where you're just focusing on these two. But in this one, I think what's so brilliant here, you've got a lot more history between the characters and then you add to it the complication of Dukat's mental state. This is a different Dukat than the one that Cisco knows or thinks he knows. And Dukat is lashing out in all these ways because, well, he's trying to get something else out of Cisco that he hasn't really tried to go for before. So speaking of Dukat, what motivates Dukat? 
<laughs> and, and and so I, mean, there, I think there are multiple answers to that. And I think that those answers can change from scene to scene or episode to episode or era to era in Ducat's career. But there's a lot that gets unpacked here about what drives him. And the most interesting part of it is that he needs approval, even adoration of everyone around him. So Zial, and we talked before about how with Zial, she's she's somebody that he needs on a personal level. He needs that family connection to her, but he also needs her almost as a political prop. He needs her to complete the picture, you know? He needs Kira, and he needs her not only uh, to sort of justify his position to Bajorans, but there's also that personal attraction to her. So he needs that out of her as well. And then he needs this out of Cisco. He needs that approval and adoration. Like we're we're speaking warrior to warrior here. He needs it out of the Bajorans, but in each of those situations, he has to be in charge. He has to be the one who has the upper hand no matter what. And he is filled with ideologically scary ideas about his own superiority by birthright. And, and you just go back to any of our discussions about the Cardassians reflecting Nazi history too. But it's all to what end, you know? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is it actually in the end that Dukat hopes to gain from any of this? What is the ultimate pat on the back for Dukat? What What is the, 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 let's say that there is no more Bajoran resistance. Let's say that Zial is alive. Let's say that the Federation is no longer a threat to him at all. And he just gets to live out his days on, well, Terraknor or on Bajor. What would still drive him? Because he still just needs to win over anybody that he hasn't won over. I think there's something about him manifesting true Cardassian cultural power, cultural, the you know, uh, just the, the, the society that he was raised in. Uh, you know, his his there's something that's very. Um, male centric because we always mm-hmm. heard about those uh references where even like Damar said like you know for our sons you know mm-hmm. Dakot said the same thing he's very prideful of his son he mentioned it one time when Cisco was his captor and it was talking about his son's birthday i think it's just that he's wired that way if if there was uh, an episode that was apropos to the parable of the scorpion and the frog it would be this episode yeah because Dakot is the forever scorpion antagonist of this series it's just who he is it's what he does no matter how far he may seem to come or no matter how much progress he may make even with a this small and um you know temporary detente that he has with cisco he'll ultimately betray you or cisco in this case because that's his nature that's just who he is and i think that's something he can't even reconcile with it himself and it makes him fascinating his narcissism reaches probably his apex in this episode because he's just trying to keep his insanity in check, but at the same time trying to manipulate Cisco. Let's go back to Sacrifice of Angel. And I think that this is this quote, this this discussion that he had with Wayun in particular was very much at the uh you know at the heart of, of Ducat in in Waltz. 
Ducat says, a true victory is to make your enemies see they were wrong to oppose you in the first place, to force Mm -hmm. them to acknowledge your greatness. And then Wayne says, then you kill them. And Ducat says, only if it's necessary. He does not want his enemies to die. He wants them to be subjugated. And to praise him and to thank him for being their leader. Yeah, He is the ultimate gaslighting leader. He wants them to see that no matter how horrific the atrocities that he's perpetrated on an entire people or an entire quadrant, it's because it's in your, and I say your being the Bajorans, best interests. You do not know what you want. I will tell you and show you what you want. As painful as it may be for me to wipe out millions of your population, it's because I love you and you should love me for that in return. Yeah. You know, it's, that is terrifying. It, it to is. See. It is. And it's so interesting because, you know, what you're describing is this note that I took, which is that Ducat seems like he, he really is the ultimate product of Cardassian society. Like, mm-hmm. like he is just every one of the Cardassian ideals boiled down on him, al- almost to the point where Cardassian society has created a monster that they can't even control. We don't know how all the other gulls are. Uh, and we, we saw some cracks in Damar, which I thought was really interesting because it's not like everybody is exactly like Dukat. And Garrick, look, Garrick is too smart. You know, that, that's, that, that's why there aren't many in the Obsidian Order. And they actually keep pretty quiet. You know, they, they pull strings uh, in the background where they can. But Takat, he's just the perfect expression of Cardassian values without any concern for anything else. That, that's really interesting to see. And then what are those values? What are the, the things that, that are driving him here and, that, and what he wants? And we get into this really scary dialogue, you know, when Cisco keeps calling him out and saying, you're not responsible for – he's baiting him, obviously. You're not responsible for what happened to the Bajorans during the occupation. The Bajorans are, yes, yes, exactly. There's the twisted logic. Of uh, like you were just describing, Norman, that bullying strongman leader of any sort could be on the playground. It could be in national politics. You know, they were forced to act the way they did. Oh, sure, mm-hmm. that that's the justification. And the the Cardassians saying, you know, that they were superior in every way, and the Bajorans could have avoided all this conflict if they just accepted it. Truly, this is one of the most chilling things to hear in this episode. Not because it's, uh, I mean, not only because it's just scary within the context of the episode, but because as awful and twisted as it is, it's the same logic used anytime in distant or in very recent history that is used to justify the subjugation of any outgroup at all. Mm. And he even he he's so uh, he's so sort of sniveling when he says you know pride like some twisted badge of honor when he's describing the Bajorans, which is interesting because it's okay for the Cardassians, but it's not okay for the finger quote inferior Bajorans. The Cardassians are full of pride about everything that they do. They would dare not be taken over by anybody else except when it's politically expedient, like the Dominion. And there they were, just ready to allow the Dominion to run things, maybe the way that they would have expected the Bajorans to allow them to run things. 
Well, hence the uh, the hallucination of Wei Yun and the way that Wei Yun's able to get underneath his skin because he's showing him a reality that, that Dukat just can't comprehend or even accept the way that his uh, state of mind is. And we also saw that up to a point where when when Odo was um, he was having those flashbacks to when he was back on Terak Nor as the as the security and interrogator, and that's when Garrick was in Quarks and he was talking about Bajorans as if they were just nothing. They were menial. They were slaves. They were mm-hmm. unintelligent. And he didn't say it to be mean. He said it because that's what Cardassians are raised to believe. That's just that came out of his uh, his stream of consciousness as easy as breathing. Yeah. That's just the way that the Cardassians were. That's their, their pride of their culture and their cultural empowerment over other lesser species. Of At least that's how they perceive them. But um, I, I wanted to kind of like turn this conversation a little bit towards mercy. Because mercy mm-hmm. is a little bit of a theme in this episode. We saw Cisco at least try to uh, offer uh, Dukat some uh, modicum of mercy, you know, as the as the better man when Dukat was in in the brig. But what about the rest of his officers in this episode? As I said before, when we were talking about mm. those, um, you know, those fortunate few that were rescued by the Defiant and weren't Cisco, the reactions of his crew really bothered me in this episode because. Well, I don't know. I mean, I might be the only one, or or maybe there's a small percentage of fans out there that were also bothered. But O'Brien's reaction to just seeing those two people that he saved, that oh. really set me off a little bit because they are they're Starfleet officers in distress. It is your responsibility to save as many of the Federation citizens, and in this case, your fellow Starfleet officers. Well, not fellow officers because the chief's not an officer, but you know what I mean. It's uh, it's their duty. Yeah. To answer those distress signals and to save as many of these Starfleet officers from peril. I mean, O'Brien says, I've locked onto them. And then he looked at the two women who were obviously injured. Now, yes, Dr. Bashir went to go treat them. But mm-hmm. he says, transport a room to bridge. We have the survivors on board. Two women. Okay, it's not their captain. But you think he'd be more excited about that. Like, we found survivors from the Honshu. Maybe they can tell us what happened. Maybe they can tell us where Cisco is. But it's just, uh and then Dax's, you know, her her uh, expression, you know, uh, in the cutscene, she's like disappointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, so look, here we are, and and look, I apologize right up front, but listeners, you know that we're right. We're putting on our writers' hats here. <laughs> we're saying writer as in W R or writers on R I G H T. Both, both. Yeah, <laughs> that this would have been a really simple fix because all you had to do, even if you kept the script basically the same. You could say as director here or or producer or just somebody watching from offstage, okay, play that scene again, but play it with relief that you got these two. You know, that that's yeah. honestly all that you would have to do because, yes, exactly to your point, and I thought exactly the same thing. It is, thank goodness, what a relief. We got two more people from the Honshu. They may have valuable information. With those two down, now we go on to the next one. Let's get out of here and go find where the next signal is coming from and make sure that we have left no stone unturned. That should have been a moment of relief, not disappointment. And I would have been, God, if this were real life, those two women, I I, I would write this up. I would write this up in a report. 
Yeah. Welcome to the Defiant. Uh, hope you enjoy your stay. Yeah. Here's a cold rack to Gino. <laughs> right. But, yeah. You know, the the thing that bothered me a lot in this episode were these kind of these um these characterizations of the Defiant crew. Now, yes, I'm not going to I'm not going to fault them for being loyal to Cisco, and obviously they want their captain back. That is that is not to be debated. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, I'm sure that they maybe knew some people on the Honshu. Maybe they even know some people on those troop carriers. Yeah. But the thing is, is that they're all in Starfleet together. It's their organization. It's their band of brothers. It's their cadre. These are people that they've learned to respect because they went through the same things that they went through. And you know what? We're in this, we're in this war together. Yeah. The more of us that are there to fight the Dominion, the better. The less of us diminishes us as a whole. So, yeah, when they said, you know, you know we, we got two. Mm-hmm. wasn't the captain. We'll get him next time. Yeah. You know, there should have been a more optimistic response to that. And it just was like... They were like, oh, really? What a waste. Yeah. That, you know? that, and that just like, scene, that bumped me out. Ooh, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And, and like I said, it's a simple fix. Just give our cast, even if they acknowledge to each other, like, well, we still have to find Cisco and time is running out. That's fine, too. But mm. you have to actually be respectful and relieved and glad of the fact that you got two more people from the Honshu. They have families who are waiting for them back at home, Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True enough. True enough. Now, did you get um, kind of like the uh, spiritual energy in this episode, say from um, all the way back to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness? That's yeah. Okay. So now that you mentioned, I didn't think about it, but now that you mention it, yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. there's a really interesting and, and shared energy in this episode, all the way back to referencing Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, or. Uh, Perhaps if people aren't familiar with that book, uh, they were probably familiar with the adaptation of that book in movie form, which was Apocalypse, Apocalypse now, now by Francis Ford yeah. Coppola. Because we saw, much like Kurtz, we saw Descartes' descent into madness amidst this attempt to, true, uh, to prove to Cisco that he's the better man, uh, much like, say, um, uh, Brando's Kurtz was trying to do to Captain Miller, uh, played by Martin Sheen. Descartes was the enemy that could have killed Cisco, but he kind of rose above that. As petty as he is, he kind of rose above that for his own machinations. Mm-hmm. And that's where I found Dukat so so wonderful to watch because you're you're trying to figure him out, trying to what is he playing at here? Yeah. And by the end, he's totally unraveled. Uh, and he proved that to Cisco, you know, with the way that he felt about the Bajorans and the way that he says I should have killed them all. But it's it's the way that you you're trying to second guess what exactly is going on with Dukat? What's in his head? Why are these hallucinations affecting him so? And how is he keeping this all in balance to the point where he can try and deceive Cisco into having the captain believe that Dukat is somewhat on his side, that they're peers and friends? I found that fascinating to watch. It certainly is, and I think we're on our way to wrapping that up. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to Ben Finney, where do you put Ducat? Above 87? Yeah, that's what I came up with too. Well, John, now that we're at the end of our show and hopefully we've silenced all of the voices in our heads, uh, now we can have a moment of clarity and see how did this episode hold up for us? Uh, did we waltz through what we needed to get through mm. and what are the 
morals, meanings, and messages that uh, our time in the cave has been able to, to educate us about. It's good, uh, good callback to the title there. Yeah. So like last week, uh, this is one of those episodes where the story that's going on, almost secondary. And I don't mean that it's unimportant. But I mean that I, at least my first experience with this episode is that this is about seeing just top-notch performances in that intimate setting. You could hand Mark Alimo a McDonald's menu and ask him to read it, and I'd come away with tears in my eyes. I mean, it's, he's powerful and charismatic, and uh, he owns every scene that he's in here. And so interesting still – that here is this quote-unquote evil character, and we're going to get to that in a moment as well. But even in those scenes where he's losing it, there's still at least a tiny shred of you that can feel this sympathy. Like, here's a guy that's absolutely losing his mind. And everything that he's processing, he's processing completely the wrong way. And this is something that I read about the uh, the writers, though, that with, with this episode, they were trying to give a little pushback to the audience. Ducat was and is an evil character, but the audience wanted more of him, and they liked him. And maybe like isn't exactly the right word, but they were intrigued by him. So here's Ira and Ron saying, no, Ducat is the worst of the worst, and you should hate him. But then drama is what we're here for, and you need actors who can pull it off and bring you into the character's reality. Otherwise, you know, why are we watching it? It's just get rid of the bad guy, and you, you're done. You move on to the next story. There's also a danger of high drama equaling yelling for some less skilled actors, but that's that's not the case here. You you, you rank up the energy. And it still works, it's still believable, and you, you still absolutely buy what's happening. When you consider how much of a TV episode is shot out of order, it's even more impressive to see the build and crescendo of what's happening here with Ducat and Cisco. Uh, I said before, it reminds me of episodes like Chain of Command or, or Duet, again, where you're just letting the actors find their way and bring as much truth to the performances as you possibly can. Um, so they, they knock it out of the park in all of those respects here. And I'll also give them this. The script is really clever. I like the fake out of the Defiant beaming up the wrong people. And we, we talk about why they treated that incorrectly, but I like the, the way they wrote and edited those sequences so that you are led to believe like, oh, oh, wait, we're getting there. We're getting there. What's going to be the cliffhanger? But then it changes your expectation. So I like that. I just didn't like the emotional reaction on board mm -hmm. the Defiant. And finally, uh, that shot of Wayun, Damar, and Kira standing in the shuttle with Dukat as he closes the hatch. It's not necessary, but it is so worth it. And that was just a great visual dramatic moment to end this episode and absolutely leave you wanting more to find out mm -hmm. where the story will go with Dukat. So I think they did everything perfectly here, except for that reaction on Defiant. I think they got it right. I think the pacing was good. The acting is just tremendous. And what it leads us into with the psychology of these characters was great. So I, I think it's a terrific 
episode, a terrific slice of DS9 that fits neatly with what has come before and wants us uh, or leads us to want more. So it works incredibly well. Uh, it definitely holds up. How about you? Well, I, I mean, before I jump into my thoughts, I really do like how you brought up Chain of Command and Duet because now we've added Ducat into these three incredibly powerful performances of specifically Cardassian gulls. And I, think, I find that fascinating because you have Gull Madrid, mm-hmm. David Warner, who turned into a tour de force performance in, in Chain of Command. You know, you had Harris Yolen as Maritza mm-hmm. uh, or, or portraying the gull because he wanted to be punished for that gull's crimes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one of the best performances, I think, in the history of Star Trek yeah. or science fiction. But now you have Mark Alimo. And yet for me, this episode uh, works and I think it stands the test of time solely because of what he brings to the table. He absolutely magnetizes your eyes to the screen. You can't help but watch all the different permutations of his personality in conflict with itself, Mm -hmm. whether it's, did he kill that officer on the haunchu (laughs) to let Cisco escape, or didn't he? He very well might be telling the truth, but you never know, because that Scorpion's thing is going to get you in the end if you believe it or not. His machinations with Cisco. what is he trying to do here? What is he trying to prove? Is he trying to prove that he is, in fact, more merciful? Because he always cannot stand the fact that somebody's going to one-up his thunder, right? And that's what Cisco did at the beginning. I mean, Cisco set the tone with it. He says, as terrible as it sounds, you know, there's a part of me that wishes he were dead, but that's a thought unworthy of a Starfleet officer. He's talking about Goldacott. He lost an empire. He lost his daughter, and he nearly lost his mind. Whatever his crimes, isn't that enough punishment for one lifetime? And I think that Cisco's right about that. And I think that that really sets the tone for us as the audience to maybe give Goldacott a second chance, at least in this story. But then we see what happens. And yeah, you know, there are a couple of story points that I'm not really still on board with mm-hmm. uh, because. Where Cisco is shining, or I should say a shining example of how a Starfleet officer's feelings are reconciled with his personal motivations versus his oath as a Starfleet officer, we saw that in direct contrast with the way that the rest of his team treated the mission at hand and the way that those other crew members were beamed up that they rescued from the Honshu. I mean, think about it this way. They put the interests of 30,000 Federation troops that were being deployed to be protected by Kira's direct orders not to deviate from that plan because they were they wanted to save Cisco. I understand that, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that the say Bashir's obstinance, uh, you know, it, it rubbed off on maybe O'Brien as well. I also found that is interesting that that Worf and Dax they created their alliance very quickly in terms of towing the line in the order and not skirting what Kira was saying based on subspace static. And how O'Brien and Bashir took the opposite stance, and they're using that as a way to cover themselves if, in fact, defying a direct order blew up in their face. Yeah. So I found that uh, interesting dichotomy between those two, um, those two alliances on the crew. But I'll tell you what, man, <laughs> just, for the sheer, just for the sheer performance alone, you rarely get something like this in Star Trek, a, a, a single tour de force performance, and that in and of itself is worthy of standing the test of time. Yeah, for sure. Now let's talk about uh, morals, meanings, messages. Um, 
So uh, we said it before on Mission Log, and it is certainly true here, the, this phrase, the villain is the hero of his own story. And that is absolutely the case with Dukat. Um There's not necessarily a lesson there for us, but it is a glimpse into what makes him or someone like him tick. And, and I think that is a, a, a worthy pursuit, a worthy area of study. And... Um, there's also the other angle of how Cisco is handling all of this, which we saw evolve from that opening teaser to that very final uh, sort of coda with Dax when he's talking to her in the uh, infirmary or the, the sick bay on board Defiant. And that's what leads me to something that isn't necessarily a moral message, but it is a question that that I have to sort of ponder here and see how this will play out when we are reconnected with this Cisco and Dukat story again. And that is this question of evil. Because at the end of the episode, Cisco has decided that there is no shade of gray anymore, that Dukat is evil. He is the definition of evil, and he will do everything that he can to end Dukat. Now, granted, he's just been through this horrible experience with Dukat. We get it. He's gotten Dukat to you know, bear his soul about his true feelings, and, he, and he's figured out what makes him tick. But what happens when you dehumanize your opponent completely? Because Dukat did that to the Bajorans. He said that they were inferior in every way. He said that he wanted them all to die. So what becomes of Sisko and his state of mind when he adopts a similar stance to say that Dukat is evil, Dukat needs to be killed no matter what. He needs to be stopped no matter what. Yes, his actions need to be stopped. But does Cisco become in any way the enemy that he is trying to defeat? And, and I, you know, clearly it is a it's a different tactic. Clearly, Cisco is responding to the things that Takat has done. But I think it's an interesting and and somewhat problematic thing to deal with at the end of this episode with Cisco saying he is evil. That's very much not a. Star Trek example that we've had up until now, with a few minor exceptions. Um, but even somebody like Khan, we have some built-in sympathies with what he went through over 15 years on SETI Alpha 5. Um, this is a case where where we are absolutely dehumanizing, or Cisco is dehumanizing Dukat to say, no, he is this thing, he is this nebulous idea, which is evil, as opposed to a person who has not and can do, has the capability of doing terrible things. So uh, that's a different Cisco at the end than the Cisco that we got at the beginning of this episode. I'm curious to see where we go with that, if there is an additional learning moment or an additional lesson to come out of that. I feel like I need to buy a lottery ticket because of what you said, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Rarely, if ever, and I think that we've explained this to the audience, rarely, if ever, do we actually see our own notes before mm -hmm. we, you know, we start talking about them here on the show. And I am aligned with you 
100%, almost to the letter. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at yours. You haven't looked at mine either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I also, um, before I jump into it, I also I find it interesting that you're almost creating this um, Ahab and uh, the white whale scenario between Cisco and Ducat. You know, what is Cisco willing to risk in order to get his his whale, his white whale, mm-hmm. his man, you know, hit the, the criminal or um, where, say, um, Eddington, you know, was his Javert. Mm-hmm. Now, Ducat has become his Javert to Valjean. Mm-hmm. I find these, I find that particular, uh, you know, dynamic very interesting. We'll see how it plays out. But what I love about this episode is, like you said, John, we return to the age old axiom. The villain is the hero of his, his or own story. We said that before about Ducat. And this is uh, obviously done in, in great uh, detail and, and performed brilliantly by Mark Alimel. Ducat, for me, has always been this incredibly like, multidimensional character, and he's written so well. He has a great depth of motivations uh, that are equal parts enlightened self-interest and megalomania and narcissism, but they're all kind of kept at bay in this harmonious relationship, this dynamic that, um, that Ducat just seems to be able to manage. But what happens when that balance is disrupted? And I think that Zial's death is the thing that really broke him. It's the, it's the tragedy that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't see coming. He couldn't anticipate. And from that on in, we, even at the beginning of this episode, even when he was calm and in the brig, we knew that he was devolving into some type of madness because there was a, a strange tranquility that he had about himself. Maybe it was because of therapy. Maybe it's because this is his plan all along. But uh, he accepted that he was captured for his war crimes, and maybe he made peace with that. Maybe he made peace with, okay, this is the sense of my life now. But when the opportunity for freedom came, he wanted to prove to Cisco that the benevolence and the grace that he afforded the Bajorans, as we have referenced before, he wanted to throw that in Cisco's face and prove to him that not only is he the better man, but in his quest to utterly destroy Bajor, or Bajor, as <laughs> Dukat said, yes. it's because he feels it is the noble thing to do for this lesser race and to show them that his his way of of cleansing their inferiority is the right way to do it. And this is where Dukat really shines as the most tragic figure, I believe, in Deep Space Nine. Mm. And I don't think that we've seen the last of him. I don't think we've seen the last of his and Cisco's dynamic. They're just too good of a of a combined force of nature in this show not to not to have back in this dynamic in some way. But on the opposite side of that coin, uh, we have Cisco here who summarizes the true message in the meaning for this episode, in my opinion, and that is being able to live with, or at least at least come to some type of terms with a world cloaked with moral ambiguity, until something, or in this case, someone, Goldicott proves otherwise when he says to Dax at the end, you know, old man, sometimes life seems so complicated. Nothing is truly good or truly evil. Everything seems to be a shade of gray. And then you spend some time with a man like Ducat and you realize that there really is such a thing as truly evil. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, there are a lot of new features on our Patreon, patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. 
on the next mission log, Who Mourns for Morn? Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Shabel. Sorry to wake you, but we need you to move your sleeping bags to the back of the shuttle bay. Thanks. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.